Great to be with you here for part two of this special edition of the Gospel Revolution Seminar. And we say, bring back the gospel. In the first session, I, I defined the gospel. We talked about why the gospel was necessary. We talked about the danger of the gospel being forgotten. Uh, we have so much teaching on so many subjects, but this very basic thing that Jesus told us to give to the world. It seems to be, be forgotten, been minimized. And uh, Jesus never used the word Christian or Christianity, not part of Jesus' vocabulary, but he spoke a lot about the gospel. And, and, and so we got started on that last week. And then in our teaching there, we, we talked about how, how the gospel is almost identical. Whether you could, you could interchange the word gospel and the new covenant uh, and we talked about how it stands in stark contrast to religion, not just to the Jewish religion, but to religion per se. Religion is about do, 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 what you must do. The gospel is about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. And so we discussed that. And there's so many benefits to the gospel. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think that the gospel was beneficial to individuals and to society at large. Uh, of course, the first thing people may think about, well, you believe the gospel, you're saved, you go to heaven when you die, and that's great. But the, and, and that may be, the, of course, the greatest, but there are many, many here and now benefits. Simply put, people live happier lives once they realize uh, that they are loved by God unconditionally. You receive correction easier. You get, and that leads to you being promoted more easily. Uh, you don't get so hurt. You don't get so offended. It's easier to forgive when you know that God has already loved and forgiven you. So there are enormous benefits to the gospel. So we are saying, let's bring that back. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God. It produces miracles. It, it leads to supernatural happenings. Then we went to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and, and we started to read there, just to recap it very quickly, uh, because there you have a very crisp uh, demarcation between the old covenant, which speaks of religion, and the new covenant, which speaks of the gospel. And, and, and that's why I put the cross here. It was kind of halfway into the teaching last in the last session. And I said the cross is the dividing line between the old religious system uh, for the Jewish people, the Hebrew religion, uh, and, 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 but it's all religions, and the, the new covenant, the gospel era. So I said you can make a, a little notepad or you can take a piece of paper and put a cross in the middle. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we can kind of read the before and after. And I think by now everybody here knows we're living after the cross. We're living 2,000 years after the cross. So we have to look at things filtered through the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's just pick up because I only got halfway into verse 7. I'm a little bit disappointed with myself, but that's all I got. Uh, verse 5 is where we started, or verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. So we're not insecure. We have confidence. And it says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, 
to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's beautiful. You have a sufficiency that's from God. Sufficient means you have whatever you need. Then it says in verse 6, who also made us adequate as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory. That's about where we ended last time. So let me read the rest of that verse. Then it says, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his, on his face, which was fading away. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious? And so here it says that the old system, the religious system, and we defined it in the last time, it, it had a certain glory. It had a certain brightness to it. It had a certain light. And religion does have a certain uh, brightness to it. it, it uh, you know, when people get together and perform their rituals, there's a certain glory to that. But it says here that the new covenant, the gospel, has much greater glory. So on, on, on the one side of religion, we said the letter kills. There's a ministry of death. But on the other side, the new covenant, the gospel side, it says the spirit gives life. And we don't have the ministry of death. We have the ministry of, of life. The letters, the ones that were engraved on stones, as well as much as they were well intended, they kill. The spirit gives life. And, and, and you could say on the one side here, on the religion side, there's some glory, but on this side, there's much more glory. And on this side, the religion side, the old system side, the glory is fading away. Here, you go from glory to glory. That's the gospel uh, context. And so let, let's read a little bit more. Notice it said fading away. Then it says, verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation has glory, Oh, that, that would go on the religion side, ministry of condemnation. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Now, whenever the Bible says the ministry of righteousness, which is what comes to the gospel, what kind of righteousness is it talking about? Some might erroneously think it means you have to try to make yourself righteous. But we know, of course, from the scripture that our righteousness, any attempt that we do to make ourselves righteous, it is as filthy rags. So when it speaks of the ministry of righteousness, it's only ever speaking of the one righteousness that is so precious, namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, Romans 5, 17, if you know that verse, it says that we reign in life through the gift of righteousness. So, so the righteousness we are talking about here, it's a gift. It's not something that we, we earn or get the merits for. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what are we doing? Are we living with a ministry of condemnation? You know, I, I, I'm sad to say that many preachers at a certain time in my life, I was doing this. I was good at condemning people. I had a ministry of condemnation. I thought that if I condemned people and told them how unworthy they were and how, how much lack they had and they weren't doing enough for the Lord, if I could condemn them, that would straighten them out. But in fact, it only reinforced the negative uh, behaviors. But the ministry of righteousness is that 
in spite of yourself, you are made righteous through Jesus Christ, okay? So that, that, that's, that's the gospel ministry. Let's read a little bit more. Verse 11, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Now that's the second time here, maybe even the third, and it'll come up again, where the phrase fade away is mentioned. See now, the book of Corinthians was written maybe around 58, year 58 after Christ, 55, 58, around there. Uh, and, and so as of yet, at that time, 58 years after the birth of Jesus, if that was the accurate year, it could be 57, like I said, or 56 or 59. If that's the accurate year, then the Jewish religion were still continuing their sacrifices. They were still, even though Jesus had become the final sacrifice on the cross and put away the sins of the world, now they were still doing their sacrifices of goats and heifers and sheep and whatever they were sacrificing. So it was still going on. That's why this phrase fading away. In other words, it, it, it's, it's really over and it's kind of fading away. And the same thing in the book of Hebrews. I'll just cross-reference that. If you go to Hebrews chapter 8, um, and we'll, we'll cross-reference there, Hebrews 8 and verse th 13, I believe it is, it says there, he said, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So we believe the book of Hebrews was written maybe 60 after Christ, or 62 after Christ's birth. And so that means the Jewish people were still continuing their sacrifices. And, and so it says, uh, this old covenant is becoming obsolete. It, it, it's, what does it say? It's growing old. It's ready or soon to disappear. It's soon going to be gone. And of course, when they wrote this, within the next eight to 10 years, it would disappear. So they were in fact prophesying that, that very soon the whole Jewish order of sacrifices in the temple, it'll be over. But it was still going on for them when they wrote it, but it, it's very soon. They, they knew that prophetically. And we know today in hindsight that on August 4th, 70 AD, if we know exactly because the Romans kept uh, good uh, historical records, August 4th, 70 years after Christ, was the last sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem because that was the day when the Romans took it over and then they destroyed the temple and there were no more sacrifices. And there have been no more Jewish sacrifices since August 4th, 70 AD. It's over. So they said it will soon pass away. Uh, Paul wrote the same thing to the, to the Corinthians. It will soon be gone. So, so these writers, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It could have been the apostle Paul. Some think it was. Others think it was one of the other writers. They had this sense, yes, when Jesus Christ said it is finished, that was really the end of the old covenant. Oh, when he rose from the dead, that was really the end. When he poured out the spirit, that was the end. But not everybody caught on and history didn't quite catch up. So it took a few very short years and they were saying it's all going to be over. It's not going to be any more sacrifices in the temple because Christ's sacrifice was the final. So that's just a little commentary. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 there. Therefore, verse 12, having such a hope, 
we use great boldness in our speech. We're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look intently at the end of what was fading away. There's that phrase fading away again. And this is referring to when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God's glory was on his face. He says he put a veil over his face. Why did he do that? Wouldn't he want to show off to everybody? Hey, look at me. I got all this glory on my face. No, he says, Moses knew it was fading away. Maybe he thought like, well, I don't want the people to see the glory because tomorrow we'll be gone anyhow. So it's no sense of getting their hopes up. I, I don't know what his thoughts may have been, but it was, he, he, he said he put a veil over because it's going to fade away anyhow, which was, it's a picture of the entire religious system is fading away. You see, the gospel does away with the business of religion. To run a good religion, and I say that facetiously, I speak as a fool like Paul said, to operate a good religion, you need two things. You need a displeased God, a God who says, I love you, but I'm not happy with you. You need to do better. And then preachers reinforce that. That's how you run a religion. Number two, you need a guilty worshiper. You need a worshiper who feels in their conscience very guilty. Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I don't measure up. And if you have these two together, then preachers and priests can, can use these two thoughts and reinforce the people, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. You don't measure up. You know, God, God loves you, but he's not happy with you. And you, you keep working on that week after week. But then comes the gospel. God is not displeased. God never was displeased. Even when we turned our back from God, God never turned his back on you. Even when Adam sinned, Adam walked away from God, but God didn't walk away from Adam. It says about Cain, the first murderer, that, that it doesn't say God left him. It says Cain left God because God has never stopped smiling towards people, loving people. Oh, God is, is a good God, you see. And, and, and so here the gospel comes in and says you don't need to have a guilty conscience. You don't, need, you don't need to appease an angry deity such as the pagan deities that they were accustomed to. No, God is a good God. And the blood of Jesus has become the proof that you don't need to feel guilty or unworthy, but you can come boldly to the throne of grace uh, to, to obtain, uh, to the throne of God to obtain grace and mercy and help for everything you need. Uh, that, that gives us the boldness. Then it says, about to verse 14, their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, but it is removed in Christ to this day. Verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, here's something very interesting. He says, whenever you read Moses here, Paul says, some people don't understand. Or then when you read the whole old covenant, they have a veil over their face. And he says, some still do today. And I would say maybe that's true where you live as well. I would suggest to us 
that many people don't understand this great difference between the old and the new covenant. It's like they think, well, well, the Bible is, you know, many events. You have Abraham, and then you have uh, uh, David, the king, and then you have the prophets. And yeah, then comes Jesus. Of course, that's the biggest thing. And it kind of just one continual flow. They don't understand that when Jesus came, that was not just like a little step up a little higher revelation than the ones preceding. It was a revolution. Everything changed. You see, God had spoken, Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God had spoken through the prophets, and they had given glimpses of who God is, but now he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is a revolution. It's before and after, before the cross and after the cross. The cross reveals God's love and God's purpose for every person. And so, so many people, you know, uh, some people say, well, let me exemplify this so you know what I'm talking about. Some people are, are praying. You know, I feel, they say that, God wants to give me the Elijah anointing. I say, why do you want the Elijah anointing? Elijah would have liked to have your anointing. He said, well, well, well I, I want the Elijah anointing. And some people say, no, I don't want the Elijah. I want the Elisha anointing because he got a double portion of Elijah. And I said, why, why would you want to have Elisha's anointing? You say, well, isn't that a good thing? No, it's not a good thing because Elijah and Elisha lived before the cross of Jesus. Now we live after the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and the mystery that was hidden to Elijah and Elisha has been revealed. What is the mystery? Colossians 1.27, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Elijah and Elisha didn't see that. They didn't see Christ in us. They, they didn't know what that was. But they look forward to something they couldn't fully understand, you know. And so we have, they would have liked to have the anointing that you have. You know, sometimes in some parts of the world, I see the little poster. I go to a church, I see a poster. They say, double portion convention. So I know they're going to be talking about Elijah and Elisha. And they're going to tell the people, if you really press in, if you really go for it, you can have the Elisha anointing, the double portion. And I say to them, I don't want the double portion. They look at me like I'm unspiritual. You don't want the double portion? No, no. Do you ever find in the book of Acts that they were praying for the double portion? Do you ever find that in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, did Paul ever say, you need to go for the double portion? Of course not. All he ever told them was, you have Christ. You see, think about how illogical that is. If you say you need a double portion, you're saying, I have Christ, but I need a double Christ. Well, if you need a double Christ, then a single Christ is not enough, not good enough. You can't double up on completion. You can't double up on perfection. Jesus Christ is everything. You have everything in Christ. Everything we have received of His fullness, grace upon grace. It's all in Christ. You can't get double all. <laughs> but, but some people don't see that. It's like they, 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 they're, they're still, you know, at least like they have, they have one foot. I don't know if you can film this. You've got to lower one of the cameras. They, they have one foot in the new covenant 
uh, uh, let me get your camera there, Ema. One in the old covenant, and they're like this. They're living like this. They say, yeah, yeah, I, I believe Jesus is my everything. He's my righteousness. But, you know, I, I need a little bit of, 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 of Moses, too. Uh, they go back and forth, and they think this is balanced. This is not balanced. This is confusion. It's like Abraham was like this, you know. <laughs> After Isaac was born, it says he lived with two women in the house. He had, he had Sarah. Oh, he loved Sarah. She was so beautiful. But he loved Hagar too. He, he, many Christians are like this. They're a little bit old covenant and then they're a little bit new covenant and they go back and forth, back and forth and they never get anywhere. Well, this whole gospel revolution seminar it is to help you to put both feet into the gospel. Oh, we love the Old Testament scriptures. I love reading the Old Testament scriptures, but I read them through the lens of what Jesus Christ has done. So if I ever see, well, there's a little difference here between David and Jesus or Moses and Jesus, I say, oh, with all respect, King David, with all respect, Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you all have to bow for Jesus. Jesus is the apex of the revelation of God. And so, 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 so here it says some people don't see this. They still read the old covenant. That's what it said here in verse 14. And they have a veil over their face. So they think, well, whatever Elisha did, I got to do that. Or whatever David did, I got to do that. No, we can learn from them. But we are not Elisha followers. We follow Jesus Christ. Oh, praise God. You know, you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was, uh, there was Jesus and there was Moses, who is a picture of the Old Testament uh, law. And then there was Elijah, who is a picture or, or represents, if you wish, uh, the Old Testament prophetic order. And, and, and there is Jesus in the middle, and we find Simon Peter there. And he was much like, you know, some Christians still are. He was so blessed and overwhelmed when he saw these three. He said, oh, let's build one cabin for each, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And some people say, how unselfish of him. He didn't want to build himself a cabin. Well, hold on for a moment, because when Simon Peter said that, then the Heavenly Father came with a loving rebuke. And, and that rebuke was, this is my beloved son. Hear him. In other words, you don't need to listen to Elijah and Moses anymore. He who is the fulfillment of every prophecy and every ritual and every sacrifice, he has come. So hear him. And when the father spoke those words, it says, suddenly Moses vanished. Elijah vanished. I say, goodbye, Moses. Goodbye, Elijah, you're gone. It means their time is over. Oh, we love them. We learn from them. We read the Old Testament scriptures. It, lest you would think that I don't enjoy the Old Testament scriptures, I love them. In our Bible school, World Impact Bible Institute, I teach five courses, five courses, each about 18, 15 to 18 hours in length, where I talk about Jesus Christ revealed in the Old Testament. But, but see, reading the Old Testament is not trying to figure out, oh, Elijah did this, and, and Amos did this, and Jeremiah did this, and maybe I should try that too. No, Jesus said, you read these 
because they speak of me in Luke 24. He says, Moses and the Psalms and the prophets speak of me. But many don't understand this, and Paul is pointing this out. He says, some people, their minds are hardened. They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear what I just taught you. Maybe you feel the same way. Well, Paul at least prophesied that there would be some like that. They would harden their heart and say, no, no, no. I don't believe that everything is revealed in Jesus. No way. It says they have like a veil over their face. They don't see it. But when you see Christ, the veil is removed. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you just know historically about a person called Christ who went to the cross, but you have a revelation of Christ. You say, oh, Christ is so big, so great. Now I see everything is in him. Then the veil is lifted. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with an unveiled face, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from uh, the Lord, the Spirit. So here's something beautiful. Uh, Paul is saying, you get a hold of this revelation. You begin to see this. And he said, it's like we all, we all, is this. we are looking in a mirror and we are seeing the same image. Now, I have in front of me here, my dear friend, Pastor Nathan's telephone. I don't have a mirror, but you know, he has a screen on his telephone and this is just, he's got his clock on so I can see how long I've been talking to you. So I don't go too long, but save more for the weeks to come. And, but I can also see my face in this. Now, this is like a mirror. His screen is like a mirror here. And I look at it and I see the face of, of, of Peter Youngren. Peter Youngren is not in the screen. I'm here, but my image is here. I see that. And so, but if I was to turn it now, I see my dear friend, Ima, come here. She's behind the camera here. Ima, you, she, she, she said, now if, come here, Ima. I know I'm going to go to, we have two cameras going here, Ima. So I can kind of see the, uh, my, my, my image here. This can, can, What do you see there, Ima? I see myself. You don't see Peter Youngren's image? Not at all. <laughs> okay, let me check. No, you're wrong. I don't see Ima. You say Ima is there. I don't see Ima. So, is it, so, so the amazing thing is, you know what? I, I, I'm playing with you a little bit here. Thank you, Ima. We, I think we made the point. Uh, what Paul is saying is that we are all, as if we were looking in the mirror, seeing the same image. So what is he talking about? He's talking about this new covenant. So when Ima looks in the mirror, she says, yeah. I see Ima, but I see Jesus Christ in Ima. I see the same image. And when I look, I said, yeah, I see Peter Youngren, but I see Jesus Christ in Peter Youngren. So Ima and I see the same image because we see that beneath this surface of our eyes and nose and skin, there is Christ in you. Oh, this is good news. This is awesome. And he says, we're being transformed into this. You don't, you don't see it right away. You say, well, this is kind of a game you're playing here, showing, talking about a mirror. No, no, I'm just following the Apostle Paul. He introduced the illustration of a mirror. And I'm not playing a game at all. This is reality. As we begin to see Jesus Christ. We say, oh, this vision of Christ, it's so great. He lived 2,000 years ago and he walked among us. He came in the body of Jesus, born of a virgin. But then he begins to say, it's growing. This vision of Christ is growing. And after a while you're saying, 
I look at other people and I see Christ in them. So I say, I look at Ema. She, she, I said, I see Christ in Ema. I see my friend Eldie from the Philippines. He's on the other camera. I, I can look at him and say, I see Christ in him manifesting. And, and I hope they see Christ in me. So after a while, it says, we all, it was all like we, we're seeing the same image. We see Christ in other people. And so that's why Paul says in one place, we don't know anybody after the flesh. We don't say, here's an ex-convict. That's all he's ever going to be, an ex-criminal, you know, ex-alcoholic, ex-whatever. No, we say, I see Christ in people. <laughs> this is so beautiful. And so uh, Paul is here ending this by, by talking about we, we got to read the Scripture correctly. So I say to you, for many of you, when it comes to, to reading the Bible, I'm going to just uh, open up here and I'm going to go in my Bible, you know. Uh, if you get to, you can look in your Bible. But uh, one page of your Bible may look like this. See this page right here? Most Bibles has got this. Whatever language you're studying, here's kind of a blank page. And here it says New Testament. So people say, well, that's where the New Testament starts. Well, the New Testament starts here, but not the New Covenant. You see, when you turn the page and you start with Matthew 1, it says so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so. I don't see any New Covenant here. I see a historical record that, that's, you know, generation upon generation. And then we see Jesus coming, being born. But see, for a new covenant to come, there has to be shedding of blood. Every covenant is inaugurated by sacrifice. And you have to get to the end of the book of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of Luke, the end of John. And there you read how Jesus went to the cross. And, and he, 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 he took our sin. He took our guilt. He became the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And then he rose again. And then you get over to the book of Acts. You have this proclaimed and preached. And then you have all the, what we call the epistles. And that means the letters, primarily from Paul, but also from John and Peter. And they explain this that happened. And so I'm saying to you, are you ready to become a gospel person, a new covenant person? Not a person who has one foot in the old, one foot with Sarah and one foot with Hagar. But are you ready to go all the way to say, I'm going to be a gospel preacher? Not tomorrow or the next day and not tomorrow, but the next week. Now I keep thinking I'm at the pastor seminar and I'm doing this every week here. One installment is the part where some people begin to weep. Some people begin to just just see visions because I take this gospel revelation to what it means for the world. You, you see, I, I'm in these two first sessions. I'm just talking about the gospel for believers, good news for believers. Some believers are so burdened down. They're trying so hard uh, to, to make themselves worthy and acceptable to God that frankly, they have nothing worthwhile to offer to the world around them. The world around you doesn't want all that. They don't want all that religious misery. But once you discover the gospel, oh, Christ in you, living through you. See, let me give you another example of this. In Romans chapter 7 and 8, the apostle Paul describes this as a marriage. 
and, and he's not giving marriage counseling per se, though it can applies to marriage, what he says, but he is using it as an illustration to how the gospel works. In fact, I'm going to go there. Romans chapter 7, he says, Do you not know, brothers, verse 1, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to those who understand and know the religion. They're familiar with the religion, whatever your religion is. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as that person lives. But he says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she's called an adulteress. But when the husband dies, she's free from the law that she's not an adulteress, uh, though she's joined to another man. Now he's saying all that to make an illustration. And he says, here it comes in verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So when Christ died, we were made to die through Christ. To what? What did we die to? To the religious systems. To the religious system that enslaved us, that gave promises that were never delivered, that promised to make us righteous, though it never could do it. We died to that. And then he says here, so that you might be joined to another, to him who, raised, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Not, not live fruitless life, but to live fruitful lives through him who God raised from the dead, Jesus. So here, let me go to the marriage illustration. You could say Romans chapter 7 and verse 8 is describing two marriages. They both seem perfect at the, at the start. You know, it says the law here. So I, I speak it from the female point of view. If you're married to Mr. Law, what does it say in Romans 7 about the law, about the religious system? It is holy. It is perfect. It is just. Holy, perfect, and just. Holy, perfect, and just. That's the religious system. And so people say, well, that would be a wonderful marriage to be married to a husband who is perfect, holy, and just. But then Paul says, that husband never helps you, only complains, only points out your fault, only shows what's wrong with you. But he says, when Jesus died through the body of Jesus, he said in verse four, the body of Jesus, you died to that old husband. You died to the law. You died to it. He's dead to you. And you're risen to a new husband, married to Mr. Jesus Christ. He is also holy and righteous and just. But more than that, he lives in you. He helps you. He sees through you. He works for, through you. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He sent you a helper, the Holy Spirit, to walk with you, to give you this, this Christ life. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty, beauty of the gospel, that Christ comes to live in you. And the sooner we realize we cannot produce the righteousness, that, righteousness that's required, but it's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the quicker we will be set free from the enslavement of religion. 
You see, when I preach good news to pastors and leaders, I usually take them uh, to Colossians chapter 3. In fact, I'll do that with you right now, where it says, you know, Colossae was a little town, not a couple of hours drive from Ephesus today, maybe took a couple of days journey at that time. It says there in Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you believe that? You know, no wonder they call Paul a blabberer. When he was preaching and teaching, they said, listen to that blabber. We call him our great theologian because he said this kind of thing. He says, you died. People said, what do you mean I died? I'm alive. So how can you say I died? Well, he says, you died. He's talking about this, that when through Christ's body, this, this mystery of the gospel that is so powerful. And if you believe it, it's the power of God. If, 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 if you think it's just a scandalous thing, then it won't work for you. But if you believe it, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God that through the body of Christ, when he died, you died with him. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. You believe that? Well, if, if you believe that, then I want to ask you a follow-up question. Why do so many Christians talk so much about the devil? Because if the devil is so powerful in your life, and in many parts of the world, in fact, in all parts of the world, in, in some it's more dominant, in some it's less, people seem to have a tremendous devil phobia, talking about the devil doing this and the devil doing that and whatever the devil is doing. Well, how is the devil getting to you? Since your life is hidden with Christ, you are like all wrapped up in Christ with God. So for the devil to really kick you around. He has to get through God the Father. He has to get through God Christ the Son to get to you. That means that God is very weak. The devil can just go through in and out day by day. No, I think it's a, it's a deception. This devil phobia is a deception. People, people's minds are darkened. And that's what Paul says, uh, that their mind, they have a veil. They don't see it. And so today I am just poking a little bit of this. I, I'm probing a little bit and says, do, do you know that Christ lives in you? Do you know that? Do you know that your body is the temple of God? See, that phrase, do you not know, in Paul's writing, he uses it quite a few times. He says, do, don't, don't you not know? Don't you know? And every time he uses that, it's concerning a topic where people didn't seem to get it. And some still haven't got it. So you can say theologically, oh, yes, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, everything. But do you know it? I mean, don't you know? Have you forgotten that Christ lives in you? This is the key to the Christian life, to surrender your own ability. Lord, I can never produce the wisdom or the faith or the joy that I need. So I reckon myself dead to myself and alive to Christ. <laughs> Sometimes I use the illustration of football because it's the most popular sport around the world. So one of the greatest footballers right now is Ronaldo or Messi. I said, you know, what if, 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 if you met Messi? Uh, Lionel Messi was a great, great player. And he was, would walk with you and talk with you and try to advise you. You know, he says, you, you need to do this and this is how you play football. Would you become a good footballer? 
Probably not, especially if you're 85 and a little bit overweight and, and, and your legs aren't as agile as they once were. It doesn't matter if he told you all the secrets of goal scoring. You probably wouldn't qualify for the national team. But I say then, what if Messi lived through you? What if he could kick through your with your foot, so to speak. He would be there. He would, he would see the play. He would see the, the field. He would see the ball. He would, he, he would think through your mind. That's, that's a depiction of this life, this good news life. Uh, you see, pastors, leaders, believers, let Christ live through you. I remember as a young man, I didn't understand this. I was over in Belleville, Ontario, and I was preaching in a gospel tent, and I've often thought back of it. This old preacher, he must have been 80 years old at that time, and he was like short. You know, I'm pretty tall. This guy was short, and, and he had been retired for years, and he was coming listening to me, and, 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 and one night he came up, and he kind of grabbed my throat. I mean, not, not my throat, my coat. I said, well, not throat, coat. They rhyme, but I mean coat. He didn't grab my throat, and he pushed me up against one of the tent poles. Everybody had gone home. I was finished preaching. And he said, just remember one thing. He says, let Christ be big in you. I, thought, I, could, I could feel it. You know, I, could, I, I don't know his name. I can just see him. Short little preacher, half bald, white hair, and a little overweight. And I let him push me. I could have probably pushed him down, but I felt some kind of presence of the Holy Spirit there. So I thought, well, if he wanted, had something to say, he says, let Christ be big in you. And that's what I'm saying today. Some of you have been going to so many seminars and you've been having seven keys to the breakthrough and 10 keys to victory. I understand one ministry offered 120 keys to victory. Well, let me tell you something. If you're going to need 120 keys to victory, you're never going to get the victory <laughs> because that's not humanly possible to fulfill 120 criteria or turn 120 keys uh, to get it. No, Christ has become our victory. Oh, this is beautiful. The Holy Spirit will make this alive to you. Now, next session, in the next session, I'm going to turn it. I'm going in a different direction. I'm going to do what maybe you expected me to do in a gospel revolution seminar. I'm going to talk about what does this mean for the world? What does this mean for people, all people, almost 8 billion people on this planet? But I'm not going there today. What does it mean to you? Because if we don't even know the gospel ourselves, this good news, this glad tidings, how can we bring it to others if we don't even know that we are more than conquerors? We still think we're conquerors. I got to conquer. I got to conquer the devil. No, you are more than conquerors. Somebody else has conquered for you. Somebody else got in the ring with the devil and defeated the devil, defeated principalities and powers, and he gives all the benefits of the winning prize to you. You are more than a conqueror through this Jesus Christ. And if we don't see that, if we are still slaving away under the weight of religion, thinking that we are going to perform it, we don't have much to offer the world because the world already has their effort schemes and their performance schemes and their religions and their, and their humanistic schemes. But I tell you, we have a message that sets people free. I have started this session by saying it benefits individuals and it benefits society, yes, 
after this life is over, but it benefits here and now. We are lifting humanity. We are lifting people to another level of discovering how much God loves them and to receive new life, to be born again, to exchange the old life for the new life. And so I want to pray with you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone's eyes will be opened. Just like Paul prayed that they will see the riches of their inheritance and they will comprehend with all the saints the width and the height and the length and the depth and know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. I thank you for good news for believers who may be become a little bit enslaved again, being brought back to the old religious system, going back into the same bondage. I thank you for freedom and I thank you for the power of the gospel. Amen. Amen.